We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Last Chicago Cubs Dynasty, Before the Curse. The publisher, Roman and Littlefield, the author, Hal Bach. Please join me as we welcome home Hal Bach to the clubhouse. Thank you. And for those, mainly for those listening to the podcast, just briefly, Hal Bach was a sports writer and columnist with the Associated Press for more than 40 years, covering 30 World Series. For this part, I, need, I may need a clarification. He's the author of 13 or 14 books? This is 14. 14, 14 books. So uh, thank you very much, Hal. It's really it's an honor to welcome you back. And just to get us going, since this is your 14th book, how did this book come about? First of all, <clears throat> let me say that I'm delighted to be here. And before I start talking about the Cubs, I want to uh, acknowledge a couple of people. We have football royalty here in Ernie Accorsi, who's responsible for drafting Eli Manning, who's responsible for winning two Super Bowls for the New York Giants. So uh, he's an important guy in my life. <laughs> Lee Lowenfish, an old friend who teaches at Columbia? I have, and now at LIU. Oh, at LIU, okay. And uh, your honors. Yes, <laughs> once upon a time. And another good friend, Tom Jory, who worked with me at the Associated Press for many, many years. How did this book come about? Well, I love baseball and I love history. And um, I'm aware, you, you know, Jay mentioned that I covered 30 World Series, and that's true. None of them involving the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> and I, I certainly know of the frustration of the Cubs who uh, last played in the World Series in 1945, shortly after World War II ended, last won a World Series in 1908 before World War I started. And I thought, my God, was there ever a time that this was a, a good team? And it turns out there was. The first decade of the 20th century, this was the best team in baseball. They uh, won 116 games in 1908. I'm sorry, in 1906. And, um, failed to win the World Series because they played the Chicago White Sox. Now, I would point out to you, if you look at your newspapers, the White Sox are in first place and the Cubs are in first place. The Cubs have the best record in baseball, the best start for that team since 1907, which was another year that they won the National League pennant. So, uh, and uh, Jake Arrieta, who pitched, who's already pitched one no-hitter, God knows how many he'll pitch this season, won his first six starts. The last Cub pitcher to do that was Mordecai Three Finger Brown in 1908. So there are signs all around us that this could be a very special year for the Chicago Cubs. And um, before the season even started, Sports Illustrated said they were going to win the World Series, which might not be a good thing for them. And Las Vegas said they were going to win the World Series. So they have the package right now. But the last time they had the package was a long, long time ago. And they were, it, was a, it was a fun team in those, I mean, I was talking to my friend Tom Jury earlier tonight, and I loved that era, dead ball era of baseball, because it was a much simpler time. You didn't have the designated hitter, you didn't have fancy sabermetrics explaining to me the flight of the ball and how fast the ball comes off the bat. You didn't have these defensive shifts. You had a very simple game. And it was played that way for 100 years, and it worked. Now, uh, I still love baseball. I, I watch a game as much as I can. I, I'll watch a game every night if I can. But um, for me, I wish I had been around in the dynasty years of the Chicago Cubs because that was a fun team. Tinker to Eva's the chance. Double play combination. You want to know how good a double play combination they were? I can tell you. There was a New York sports columnist named Franklin P. Adams. And uh, he wrote 
a poem about Tinker to Evers the Chance. These are the saddest of possible words. Tinker to Evers the Chance. Trio of bear cubs, fleeter than birds. Tinker to Evers the Chance. <clears throat> Thoughtlessly pricking our gonophon bubble, making a giant hit into a double. Words that are weighty with nothing but trouble. Tinker to Evers the Chance. <laughs> well, uh, Tinker was the shortstop. Evers was the second baseman. Chance was the first baseman and the manager. Tinker and Evers didn't talk to each other for about five years. Uh, why is that? Well, <laughs> Tinker threw a ball at Evers on a double play, and he fired it like it was a fastball, and he broke Evers' finger. Evers was not amused. Evers, in those days, the teams dressed in the hotel and took cabs out to the ballpark. And they would go together to the ballpark. One day, Evers came down, grabbed the cab, and took off. Left half a dozen Cub players sitting in the, in the hotel lobby. And Tinker thought that was the worst thing you could possibly do. So as a result, they didn't talk to each other for, I don't know, five years or thereabouts. But they made double plays. Um, they played, the Cubs played 693 baseball from 1906 to 1910. 693 is like winning seven games out of every 10 you, you play over a five-year period. That's just not done. So that gives you an idea of how good they were. The best pitcher they had was Mordecai Three Finger Brown. The secret is that he had four fingers. <laughs> he had had a farm accident as a kid. They all, these guys all grew up on the farms. And uh, he got into a farm accident with some machine and lost a good part of one finger. He had like a stub of a finger. Within two weeks after that, he was chasing a farm animal, fell, and mangled two more fingers. So as a result, his, thing, his hand was deformed. And when he threw a pitch, it created a spin that the batters of that day had never seen before. And that's what made him such a good pitcher. He won 239 games for the Cubbies. Everybody know about the Merkel affair? Christy Mathewson was the Giants pitcher the day that Merkel did what he did. And Christy Mathewson would have won that game, would have been the winning pitcher in that game, except for the Merkel blunder. Christy Mathewson wound up with 372 victories in his great career, Hall of Fame career. Grover Cleveland Alexander had 373. So if Merkel hadn't blundered, Mathewson would have been tied with, with, uh, with old Pete, Grover Cleveland Alexander. So stuff like that fascinates me, and that's why I went into it. The Cubbies had a right fielder named Frank Schulte. He was nicknamed Wildfire. Everybody called him Wildfire, and that was because he was a great fan of Lillian Russell. Now, uh, their relationship, I don't exactly know what it involved, but I suspect I know, and I think you know too. <laughs> anyway, uh, Wildfire Sch Schulte was a great player, and he had a suspicion. He would collect hairpins. I don't know if he collected Lillian Russell's hairpins, but he collected hairpins. <laughs> he would find them in the street, and, it, and his, he believed that the direction and the length of the hairpin would predict how many hits he would get and how they would go, what, what field they would go to. It's a little goofy, but listen, you know. In 1911, which was shortly after the dynasty started to come apart, he hit four grand slams. He had 20 doubles, 20 triples, 20 homers, and 20 stolen bases. The only player since then to do that was Willie Mays in 1957. So you can imagine how good a player Frank Schulte was. They had a pitcher named Jack Taylor. Now, one of the things that I object to about modern baseball are pitch counts and innings limits. Pitch counts, 100 pitches, you're out of the game. You can't throw any more than 100 pitches. And innings, 
usually six innings for 100 pitches. Jack Taylor started 286 games in his career. He completed 278 of that 286. He had 186 consecutive complete games, and many of them went extra innings. Now, explain to me how he was able to do that and modern pitchers, I mean, is the arm different? Probably the arms today. <laughs> Very good. Uh, probably the arms today are stronger because of the nutrition and the workouts and everything else. But today, you can't throw more than 100 pitches. They were a great team. There's no two ways about it. They were put together by a guy named Frank Seeley. Frank Seeley was hired away from the Boston Braves. He had, he had managed the Braves to five pennants in 12 seasons, and also the first 100-win season in baseball history, the 1898. I'm going back a bit. And uh, he was hired by uh, the Cubbies in the early 1900s, first part of the century. And he assembled a team, and he moved players around. Uh, Evis came up as a second baseman, he moved him to shortstop. Tinker came up as a third baseman, he moved him to second base. Frank Chance was a catcher, he moved him to first base. Chance said, I'm not playing first base. This is, for, not, I'm not a first baseman, I'm a catcher. So my friend over here went like this, and that's what they did with Frank Chance. They put a few extra bucks in his contract, and suddenly he became the first baseman. Now, um, I mentioned before that Johnny Evers, I think I mentioned, Johnny Evers was not a nice man. They called him the crab. He's the guy who, by the way, uh, called the play on Merkel, called for the ball and caused the force out. And uh, he knew the rule book inside and out. And uh, the rule, in case you want to look it up, I looked it up. It's rule, uh, rule 4.9 4 about the third out in an inning and the run can't score. Um, so anyway, they called him the crab because he was not a nice man. Well, probably Frank Chance rivaled him in not nice man-ish. I mean, he was, he was a character. He, uh, he did not get along with anybody, even though he was the first baseman on that great double play combination. Now, I want to read to you a section of my book, which gives you an idea about Frank Chance. He got hit by a lot of pitches because he crowded the plate, and that probably led to his uh, crankiness. Chance was particularly annoyed when players on his team socialized with their opponents, shaking hands and acting as if they were old pals. You're a ball player and not a society dancer at a pink tee, he scolded them. <laughs> I want to see some fight in you and not this social stuff. If one of the Cubs violated Chance's rule by chatting with an opponent, it would cost the violator 10 bucks, making the ca casual conversation rather expensive. Chance did not accept failure casually. When he was managing the New York Yankees, who had changed their name from the Highlanders in 1913, he often found himself on the bench next to Bill McKechnie, a nondescript reserve player. When he was asked why he spent so much time with McKechnie, Chance growled, because he's the only one on this club who knows what it's all about. Among this bunch of meatheads, his brain shines like a gold mine. A few days after that endorsement, McKechnie found himself playing second base on a muddy field. When a ball skidded past him and landed in a puddle, McKechnie lost sight of it, costing his team a run. Chance was so angry that he fined his prized pupil and shipped him off to the minor leagues. McKechnie must have learned something, though, because he went on to manage in the major leagues for 25 years in Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Boston, and Cincinnati, winning four pennants. As a batter, Chance crowded the plate making him a frequent target for pitchers. In a May 30th, 1904 doubleheader, he was hit by pitchers three times in the first game and twice more in the second one. 
He was hit in the head 36 times in his career at a time long before batter's helmets were a routine part of every player's equipment. The beanings took a terrible toll, leaving him with a loss of hearing in one ear and blinding headaches that led to a surgery for blood clots in 1912. The wins and the losses of a season kept Chance on an emotional roller coaster. One time, Cubs second baseman Johnny Evers, who was nicknamed the Crab for his rather unpleasant demeanor, found the manager sitting alone in a hotel lobby, looking tired and gloomy. He tried to lighten the boss's mood to no avail. After a few minutes, Chance looked up and observed to no one in particular, this business is making a crab out of me. Um, but he was a very successful manager. There's no two ways about that. And this was a very successful franchise. Um, they won four pennants and two World Series. They won the, the 1906 pennant. They had, they had won a lot of games before 1906, but in 1906, they were out of this world. 116 wins set the record, which was matched in 2001 by the Seattle Mariners. What do the Mariners and the Cubs of 1906 have in common? They didn't win the World Series. Exactly, they both washed out. <laughs> that, that's life, you know, that's, base, that's baseball, as Casey Stengel once told me, that's baseball. Okay. Um, in 1906, they won 116 games and lost to the Chicago White Sox in the World Series. In 1907-1908, they won the pennant and they won the World Series. And 1908 was, of course, the year of Merkel. Um, Merkel's game came here in the polo grounds. And uh, he was playing his he was starting his first game of the season. He was 19 years old. He was a kid, you know. And McGraw put him in. John McGraw was the manager of the Giants. Put him in at first base. And in the ninth inning, he found himself on first base. And there was a, a runner on third with the winning run in a tie game. And a base hit, winning run should score. But Merkel fails to go to second base. He peels off, and that and it wasn't his fault, because that's what runners did in those days, in, in that circumstance. He peels off and goes into the clubhouse. And Johnny uh, Evers sees what's happening, calls for the ball, touches second base, and the umpire, Hank O'Day, calls Merkel out. Now, there's some history there. Um, two weeks before that happened, a sa the same thing happened in another game in Pittsburgh. O'Day was the, manager, was the uh, umpire, and the same circumstance that involved a player named Warren Gill and Evers pointed it out to O'Day, and O'Day said, I didn't see it. But it was like planting a seed. And two weeks later, the seed blossomed. And O'Day called Merkel out. The game is tied 1-1. Now there are no lights. It's dark. So we're going to suspend the game. And it lands in the lap of the president of the National League, a man named Harry Pulliam. Now, McGraw is fit to be tied when he hears about this. He thought we won the game. The Giants win the game. Now he hears about this problem. And McGraw was not a pleasant fellow either. <laughs> so the first thing he decides to do, they're going to have affidavits. The, the, the Pulliam, the, the president of the National League, decides he wants affidavits from all the players. Uh, testifying to what they saw and what happened. Well, if Merkel is going to have to sign an affidavit, McGraw is going to make sure that it's accurate. So what he does is he sends Merkel to the polo grounds, which has no lights. <laughs> Dr. Bird. Hi. Uh, 52 years, you better, better win the prize, knowing how far the longest. That's right. 52. Merkel sends, um, I'm sorry, McGraw sends Merkel to the polo grounds, it's pitch black. It's getting dark now. It's pitch black. And he's, he says to him, he gives him a lantern to run to second base and touch second base so that when he signs the affidavit that says he touched second base on that date, it would be accurate. It would be honest. 
Well, that's McGraw. <laughs> what can I tell you? They finally decide that they're going to have a playoff. They, they decide that the, the way to solve this problem, oh, I should point out to you, the following week after this Merkel thing has dominated the news, the Cubs had a pitcher named Ed Ruleback, who was like the second banana right behind Three Finger Brown. And Ed Ruleback pitched a doubleheader here in Ebbets Field. Shut out the Dodgers in the first game, and he shut them out in the second game. It's the only time in history that ever happened. Pitcher threw two shutouts in one day. But it was overshadowed by the Merkel affair. And they finally decided that they would have to have a playoff. And the uh, playoff was up in the Polo Grounds. And I mean, the place was packed. Polo Grounds holds 50, or held 55,000 fans. There were fans in the streets. There were fans climbing up on, on the uh, elevated train. And in fact, one poor fireman, a guy named McBride, fell from the, from the structure, from the train structure, fell and died. Fell and hit his head, and he died. They carted him off, and somebody else took his place. That was the, the passion of the game that that, that uh, created. There was a lot of talk about fixes, that they there were gamblers involved. Uh, and in fact, the doctor, the club doctor for the Giants, whose name I forget, but he's in here, um, approached the Cubs, or one of the Cubs, I think he may have approached Chance and said, listen, you'll have a job for life and you'll have money and just see what you can do about losing this game. And this was reported to Pulliam and the club doctor was suspended from baseball for life. Not that he was particularly lost <laughs> to, the, to the effort of the team, but um, so there was a lot of stuff going on around this game. And the, uh, the Cubs win the game they go on to the World Series, and they win the World Series. It's the last time the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Yes, sir? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, lots made always about the clubhouse in that polo grounds being out in the center field. Yeah. And somebody told me it was common for players to run across the field to avoid the fans when the game ended. That's why Merkel did what he did. Is that the only stadium that had a clubhouse in center field like that? Was that unusual? My recollection. I mean, I started following baseball in 1947. There was never any other place with the, the construction of the polo grounds. It was a strange ballpark. I mean, it was like a bathtub. And in fact, I remember very vividly, and in fact, I had a conversation with Bob Lemon about this, the Hall of Fame pitcher. Lemon was on the mound in the 1954 World Series, and he's pitching against the Giants, Cleveland against the Giants. The Giants had a guy named Dusty Rhodes, Jim Dusty Rhodes. He was an outfielder, but mainly he was a pinch hitter. And Leo DeRocha sent Dusty Rhodes up to the plate to pinch hit in the, late in the game. And Rhodes hits a fly ball down the right field line. Bobby Avila, who's the second baseman for the Indians, backs up because he figures it's a pop fly. Well, this pop fly hits the overhang in right field 257 feet away, and it's a game-winning home run. And Lemon never got over it, because 25 years later, when he was managing the Yankees, he told me the story again. He said, that son of a bitch hits a home run 257 feet. What else can I do to get him out? You know. So it was a, a quirky ballpark, a very strange ballpark. Uh, Willie Mays made a catch in the 1954 World Series, deep, deep, deep center field with his back to the plate. It's a famous painting. Uh, Jay probably has a picture of it here. Uh, one of the most, one of the most remarkable catches I've ever seen. But he had the room to run because that's the way the Polo Grounds was configured. So yes, the, the answer to your question is yes. The clubhouses were in center field. I think what Merkel did was peeled off towards the dugout because that's what they did in those days. Yes, sir? He wasn't going to center field? I'm sorry? He wasn't going to the clubhouse? I don't think so. I think he was going to the dugout. Yes, sir? Thompson Branca, your thoughts. I'm sorry? <coughs> Thompson Branca, your thoughts. Except for the day I got married and the day my son was born, 
it is the most remarkable, memorable, exciting moment of my life. I was 12 years old, and I was in junior high school, and I came home from school, and I had lived this whole summer, I mean, giants and dodgers, back and forth. You know, they say on the corner, people argued. Well, they did where I lived in the Bronx, they did. And uh, so I rushed home from school knowing the circumstances, the deciding game. And uh, my dad was listening to the game on the radio because our television had crapped out on us. And uh, <laughs> well, it did. So I'm now, I refuse to listen to the game because I'm so angry that we are going to lose the pennant after this long, drawn-out race. They won 37 of the last 44 games, the Giants did. And so uh, I go into the living room and I pick up the newspaper. I was, I must tell you, I'm a newspaper junkie. I always have been. I love newspapers and I always read them. When I was a kid, I read them and I read them today. So I started opening and reading the newspaper to find out what's going on in the world. Korean War was going on in the world. Russians with atom tests and stuff like that, you know. And I can hear the Giants rally. And I'm turning the pages. Now, my little 12-year-old brain decides that my turning the pages coincides with the Giants' rally. <laughs> so if I keep turning the pages, we'll be in good shape. But I got to turn them slowly, because I don't want to run out of pages. <laughs> and of course, Bobby Thompson hits the home run. And I jump up, and I ran into the kitchen where my dad was listening to the game. And we started dancing. <laughs> it was the one of the greatest, well, it's the greatest sports memory I ever had. Who's it, Russ Hodges? Uh, Russ Hodges. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. They're going crazy. They're going crazy. Oh, yeah. So it was a great moment. Now, I know that there's been some controversy about stealing signs. I got to tell you, first of all, sign stealing went on in 1910. People, uh, teams stole signs all the time was always done. So that was nothing new. But if the Giants were stealing signs to win the pennant, will somebody please explain to me how come they lost 10 to nothing the day before? Did they not want to win that game and win the pennant that day? Were they just taking the day off from stealing signs? That's baloney. I just don't believe it. Yes, sir. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. The Giants stole signs. Are you telling me the Giants stole signs? Stealing signs from the clubhouse. And when the Dodgers tried to do something about Chuck Preston was in the dugout with the president and was trying to see what was coming from the stand. The umpire ran over there and said, You can't have binoculars in the clubhouse. In the dugout. So he wasn't able to check it. He wasn't smart enough, despite the fact that this is such a genius, to put somebody in the stands of his own just to keep checking out the clubhouse. So they never figured it out. And oh, by the way, 1954, according to Joshua Prager, they were stealing signs again. Now, we don't know if they did it in the World Series. You say, we, we don't know. The first two games are in Colorado. Dusty Rhodes, two pitch hits. I mean, come on. This, and, and not just then, 1959. Why did they lose before. 10 to nothing the day before? Because it doesn't matter. You only have to win one game. In, in the, uh, I'd win it as quickly as I could. But yeah. if you can't always get it, if the Dodgers jump out in front, you know, you're not going to get it. Okay, and that's the thing. And, and not everybody wanted to know what the signs were. Willie was one of the people who liked to know what signs were. But on the whole, you know, they only had to win one game. Because at the end of the season, all the Giants did was tie. Let me ask you a question. If they for two months and didn't win one game, you got, you know, then you're right. That's going to be a hard one to prove. Let me ask you a question. You're right. They only had to win one more game. They won the first game. No, no. I'm talking about at the end of the season, they tied. They didn't beat the Dodgers. They tied. That's what set up the playoffs. So if they're treating, treating, the Dodgers tied them. The Dodgers game was later. Yeah. The Giants never went ahead. Correct. Because they cheated. So You're 100% correct. That, that's, if they only won one game by cheating, that's the only reason they played. That's oh, you're talking the about the regular won. season. During the regular season, that's the only reason they played the playoffs. Did teams cheat? Did teams it's not, steal signs? I mean, if you can't take Fernando You think the Dodgers the stole dugout, signs? If you can't do it from the dugout to check, then, you know, the Giants had an unfair game. Do you believe the Dodgers ever stole signs? They stole signs from the field. I'll bet Everybody they did. They stole signs from the field. This was a clubhouse setup. This was an electronic device from the clubhouse. 
I just, I was 12 years old. Don't break my heart. <laughs> don't, don't trifle, don't trifle with my feelings. <laughs> yes, sir. Tell you an interesting story about uh, Thompson and uh, Thompson and Berra were at a dinner, and I was sitting at the table with them. Uh -huh. And Thompson, of course, was relating how he hit the home run as he always did. Yeah. And Yogi Berra says, "Yeah, I was at that game, but I left. I figured it was over. And the, the traffic is usually murderous into New Jersey, so he left. But he heard he heard it on the radio. Right. So Thompson said to him." I know one thing. I know who you were rooting for, even though even though you didn't hear it, because the polo grounds, the grounds was much bigger than Evans Field, and that meant they got a much bigger share in the, the World Series. And yeah. in those days, what they got in the World Series was equivalent sometimes to a whole uh, paycheck. Oh yeah. For the whole season. That's why the Yankees were famous. When a young player came up, the Yankee veterans would go and say, "Don't mess with my money. Don't mess with my World Series share." You. You know, that's important. That was important. That was, I mean, they made no money. They made very little money in those days. Yes, sir. I think I read this in Al Stump's book, but it refers to the Cubs. Is it true that when the Cubs and Tigers were playing, like Johnny Kling would not be quiet the entire time, like behind the plate? Like, oh, Johnny Kling. Yeah. Johnny Kling. Interesting story. I meant to mention it. Johnny Kling was the catcher, and he was a hell of a catcher. And, uh, he was also a billiards player. And in fact, the world billiards champion in uh, 1908. And now there's varying accounts of what happened, whether the Cubs didn't want to pay him, or he just got tired, or what. But he didn't play in 1909. He said, screw it. I'm going to go defend my world billiards championship. And he lost. He did not win. And he returned to the ball club in 1910. And of course, they won the pennant again. So it's interesting. Uh, Kling was a, was a terrific player. Um, he, uh, he was replaced by two catches. Both of them were pretty good. Uh, but they were not in his class. So he was an integral part of that team. Who was the third baseman? With Tinker, Rivas, and Chance. That's a great who? There you go. Uh, that's the, any bar you go into when they get into trivia, that's a question that's guaranteed is going to be asked. Harry Steinfeld. He was a very good player also. He led the league in hitting. And he had come over from the Cincinnati Reds in a trade. And the strange thing was, he kind of knew that he was going to be squeezed out of the red situation. And Al, Bridwell, Al Bidwell, who was the guy who had the hit in the Merkel game at the end of the game, uh, Steinfeld went up to him and said, my time is up here. You're going to play. You're going to be the third baseman. And it turned out that he was right. He was prophetic. They traded Steinfeld to the Cubs. And of course, Bridwell wound up with the Cubs as well. But uh, he was a good player. And does anybody know? And it's in the book. Does anybody know what Steinfeld did before he was a baseball player? He was a minstrel. What? He in the vaudeville, on the vaudeville scene in those days. He probably hung out with Lillian Russell. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, she, he may have been possible, very popular. What happened in 09 and 10, and how did the team come apart? You know, um, Players started to drift away. Evers was traded. Evers, Evers and, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, Tinker and Evers didn't get along. We know that. And Evers was named manager. And Tinker went berserk. He said, I can't play for him. So he had to be traded. So they traded him to the Boston Braves. And one by one, Chance was injured. Chance was on the, on the, uh, injury list for a long time. He was in a hospital for a long time. So one by one, the players seemed to get drifted away. And uh, the, the dynasty broke apart, um, like all dynasties do. I would cite to you uh, my friends in the Bronx, the New York Yankees. Same thing happened. You used the term cubbies, which 
I personally find to be, but do you know the origin when it happened? I mean, is it Cubs? Like, you mean? No, the Cubbies. 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 I don't know. I don't know that. I know when the they got named the Cubs. They they went through a bunch of names. They were the White Stockings in the 1890s. Um, when Cap Anson was the manager in the 1800s, and he was a hell of a manager, by the way, they had a dynasty too. They won many pennants. I think five out of seven years they won pennants in the 1880s. And Anson left, and they became known as the orphans because he had orphaned them. And eventually, in 1903, maybe 1902, the sports editor of a Chicago newspaper came up with the name Cubs because they were a young team. They had so many young players. And that was the derivation of the name Cubs. Now, Cubbies, that I don't know. Schulte, some people think Wildfire Schulte was the model for You Know Me, Al, of Ring Lordner. Have you ever heard that? I have not heard that. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't know that. I know a lot, but that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and is Cubbies considered pejorative by the Cubs fans? Or Bobby Mercer used it on the Yankee broadcast. Uh, he had been, and he didn't have a happy time there, I don't think. The thing that impresses me, yeah. and has impressed me, is the passion of Cub fans. It's amazing. I mean, imagine not being in the World Series since 1945. This place looks like the bleachers, by the way, at Wrigley's Field. <laughs> it really does. Um, and when I was, and I told this story to my friend Tom Jury at dinner, um, when I was looking for somebody to do an introduction to the book, I knew that Joe Mantegna was a great Cub fan because he had done bleacher bums and he had done some other stuff. And so I just blindly wrote him a, a, a query. I said, would you be interested in doing this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he wrote a terrific introduction to this book about the passion of Cub fans and why Cub fans love their team and how they're, uh, they're loyal to, uh, to a fault. So that was how I got him. Yes, sir? What's the management attitude about the bleachers on top of the apartment houses? Uh, I believe they do, but not for the Cubs. The, 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 the Cubs play in the 7030. It's a split between the, uh, the organization and the You know, it, the, uh, so no the ball ballpark has undergone a, a remodeling. I've not seen <laughs> the ballpark. It sucks. They've locked, the, the left field <coughs> rooftop seats are pretty much all completely locked off now. So there's about three of the rooftops that still have a relatively unencumbered view, but for the most part, they had signed a deal with them years ago that they would never do that, that they would never build something to block it, and they kind of went back on it. So it's, there's a bit of a controversy about it. But Times change. The city is very hostile. So. Yeah, exactly. So eventually it'll go away. No, 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 no to the rooftops. Yeah, those will go away eventually. But so the do make money on it. Writing this book was, uh, was a lot of fun. I told, again, I told my friend Tom, um, I love baseball history, and I, and I love the dead ball era, and I love the characters who played in that time. It was, just a lot, it was a lot of fun researching it and doing the writing. I, I had a great time with it. Yes, sir? The future of baseball in America. I'm sorry? The future, the future? of baseball in America. In my mind, and I apologize to the former football executive, but in my mind, baseball is the national pastime, has been, and always will be. Uh, it's a cerebral sport. There's no violence. I mean, there's hit batsmen and there's fights on the field occasionally, but by and large, it doesn't involve contact. It, I mean, it's just a great, to me, it's the greatest sport ever invented. I've said that to a number of people. Um, I love the game. I just love the game. It's, uh, it's a passion of mine. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> until the last year or so, my passion has been the Mets. <laughs> and I can tell you why that is. I told you earlier that my father was a Giants fan. And when I was growing up, it was clear to me that I had to be a Giants fan or else I'd have to move out of the house. And I was eight years old, you know, where am I going to go? <laughs> so, so I was a Giants fan and they broke my heart when they moved to San Francisco with the Dodgers in 1957. But I've always been a National League fan, and when the Mets were invented, I was going to stay with the National League. And uh, that involved a lot of angst over the years. 
I've got scars where people don't have places. <laughs> but, uh, but it's been very good the last two years. Uh, they have this great young pitching staff, which keeps them away from long losing streaks. Um, the Giants in 1951, you asked me about 1951, lost 11 straight games at the start of the season. So um, that can't happen to a team if you have the kind of pitching staff that the Mets have. They're always going to come up. The next pitcher is, go, is always going to be a stopper. Um, and that's a great thing for, you know, for a team. So when you put together a team, you get a lot of good pitching. Yes, sir? Was it? I, know, I assume they traveled by train, but what were the conditions like in their travel? What kind of trains did no way use? Slow trains. <laughs> it, was, it was train travel. There were no, uh, it was not air travel. It was a different era. The writers traveled with the players on the trains. The writers did not go into the clubhouse after the game as they do today. Um, I was just at a, I was telling Jay before we started, uh, I did a, an, a, an event at a writers conference in Washington last weekend. And we talked about the difference uh, in the, the way the game is covered today as opposed to the way it was covered in that era. Um, because of television, that changed the way journalism was practiced, right, uh, written journalism was practiced. Now, uh, <laughs> game starts at 7 o'clock, right? Night game starts at 7 o'clock, 7.10. The clubhouse opens at 3.30, and that's when the writers start their day. It's a long day um, because they go into the clubhouse and they have to get stories. They have to get generate stories. It's more than hits, runs, and errors that they want in the newspaper. So uh, in those days, travel was on the trains, and the writers traveled with the players. But you would never see the kind of scandal stuff that you see today. It never, you, that was not a part of the journalism in those days. The part of the, the, what they cared about was hits, runs, and errors, how the games were played, how the games were won or lost. But uh, they did travel with the with the right with the writers. Yes, sir. The Cubs have been uh, getting better recently. Um, you follow them now, or what do you think? Yeah, I look at the box score every day. I want of, them to win. What do you think of the chances of uh, ending the curse? The chances of winning? Of winning, yeah. I think the chances are great. I think the chances that you know they play in probably the toughest division in baseball. Yeah. They have the Cardinals and the Pirates are really good. They just swept the Pirates. And I'm hoping they do the same to the Nationals coming up this yeah, week I'll, because I'll I'm a Mets fan. You know? <laughs> Any help I can get, I'll take. You know, so uh, they're a they're a hell of a good team. They are. They have a terrific roster, and they have the pitching. They have Lackey now. They have Lester. They have Hamill, and they have uh, Arietta. I mean, Arietta is unhittable. Yes, sir. You uh, were as a Giants fan, so you rooted for DeRocher and Mays and that team. When you became a sports writer, did you cover them? And were you, was it, were you awed and then disillusioned? I mean, one of the guys, like? one of my dearest friends in this business was a man named Jerome Holtzman. Mm -hmm. Jerome Holtzman uh, was a Chicago sports writer, baseball writer. And he wrote a book. The name of the book is No Cheering in the Press Box. And there is no cheering in the press box. You have to, you just have to suspend your feelings for a team because you have a job. You're reporting the game. And working for the Associated Press, we wrote about winners. Um, people wanted to know who won the game and why they, how they won the game. And my, my assignment was to tell them that. But I, I also mentioned this in Washington the other day. The best stories always come out of the loser's dressing room. And uh, when I covered the World Series, I frequently wound up in the loser's dressing room, simply because those are the best stories. Uh, you, you, the emotion um, that, that players have. I mean, I've seen players crying at their lockers over losing the World Series. And uh, they, they want to win. I mean, you know, I've got a ring. This is from NYU. I went to NYU. But it's a cherished <laughs> ring. And 
the World Series ring is a cherished ring. And these players make so much money. I, I think the minimum salary now is over $400,000 a year. Okay, there you go. Um, so money doesn't mean a lot. The, the winning share, I mean, sure, it's nice, but the money isn't as important to them as that ring. And the rings now are ostentatious also. <laughs> they don't look like this. <laughs> yes, sir. The importance of sabermetrics and the evaluation. I hate them. I hate sabermetrics. And to me, one of my dear friends is a man named Bob Rosen, who works, has, has worked for the Elias Sports Bureau for about 100 years. I mean, he's a statistician, and he's worked for Elias. Elias is, if those of you who don't know, he, the official statisticians for Major League Baseball. And Bobby Rosen calls me every so often, and we just visit and talk about baseball, which is what's better than talking about baseball. And I asked him once, I said, well, this business of sabermetrics, this Elias, he said, we don't recognize sabermetrics. And for me, that was very important. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in the analytics. I, I remember, you know, you get press notes when you go cover a game. Before the game, there's a bunch of press notes that are available for the writers. And that's good stuff because you have to put, you have to fill up a column, you know. And I found press notes when I covered games, they would say, David Wright bats 278 on cloudy Wednesdays, but on sunny Wednesdays, his average is 280. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And then this business about the speed of the ball off the bat. You know, as I mentioned before, Dusty Rhodes hit a pop fly. It wasn't hit very hard, but it was a home run. The speed of the ball off the bat to me doesn't matter. If the ball goes out of the ballpark, it's a home run. What, what does it matter how fast it goes? The defensive, I, I, I go crazy when I see the defensive shifts. Why can't a major league player, if he's standing at home plate, let's say he's a left-handed hitter, he's a pull hitter, and they immediately station three guys on the right side of the infield, and there's one lonely guy on the left side of the infield. Well, if I'm that hitter, I can do one of two things. I can either lay down a bunt and beat it out for a hit down the third baseline. There's nobody playing over there. Or I can hit the ball to left field. I should be able to. Now they say, whoa, wait a minute. They, can't, they are so attuned to pulling that they'll never hit the ball the other way. Why not? We Willie Keeler hit them where they ain't. And that's a very good strategy. Yes, sir. He was they a statistician. They didn't think they invented the game. A pinch means... There's a difference, though. There's a difference between... Invent I, I understand what you're saying. A pinch was... I mean, when I did the book with Seat, we always talked about the whole... Every game has five pitches you have to make. Like, uh, Gaussman has got uh, Teixeira at third with two out right now. And that's the pitch he's got to make. And that's it. And, but, you know, the way they invent stuff... It, and, and, you know, they've taken over. You don't think I, mean, I don't know how long it's going to last. You think guys like Casey Stengel were doing that in their head? Just well, sure. He, 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 I mean, put yes, he they, put they got it. Tell so me now, this. Now tell me this. They, they say that the father of, of sabermetrics and all of that, well, not the father, but one of the early uh, dis disciples of it is Billy Bean, the Oakland A's general manager, right? I want to know how many playoff series the Oakland A's have won since Billy Bean has been the general manager. Do you know? Do you believe? Do you believe that sabermetrics are responsible for Jake Arrieta and John Lester and making the trade to get him? Very possible. Oh, yes. I don't think so. Oh yes, because they saw something that the team that let him go didn't see. That's part of analytics. It's been going on since the beginning of time. It just never had a name before. I don't know. Well, we agree to disagree. Fine. <laughs> yes, sir. You mentioned shifting a little 
Yes. Yes. But we're talking about the average player. They do. Okay. They do it for every player. Oh, okay. Ted Williams was an exceptional ball player. Okay. Um, maybe the best hitter ever. I don't know. You know, he'd have a lot of competition. But now it's done routinely. Oh, it's okay. so every hitter, it seems like, they shift. What? Well, if I'm a hitter, it just seems like simple matter to me to hit the ball where there's nobody playing. Yeah, I don't know. I maybe it's hard to. I, I, maybe I can't. Ted Williams couldn't. Well, yeah, yeah but then you shouldn't be. Then you shouldn't be making five million dollars. You ought to be able to do it if you're making that kind of money. In my mind, you know, I, that's just my my opinion. I mean, it just seems to me. I know it's tough. I know hitting a baseball. What the great Pete Rose once said: uh, "There's nothing tougher in sports than hitting a round ball." <laughs> with a cylindrical bat, you know? I, and I believe him. I think that's a very guy strong. Here's a question for you. My friend Hank Aaron, great ball player, 755 home runs. Every one of Hank Aaron's home runs was hit with fans screaming and the ball moving 90 miles an hour. Right? True? Golf. Quiet. Tennis, quiet. You can't disturb the concentration of the players. How good concentration did Hank Aaron have to hit all those home runs? It wasn't quiet when he hit them. Part of my admiration of baseball and baseball players is that they succeed and they, they do what they do under difficult circumstances. Anybody else? I, yes, sir. Uh, going on a different note, you mentioned that pitcher John Taylor earlier. I was just wondering if um, he was named, if Taylor made double play, was named after him. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Could be, but I don't know. It, it seems like it would make sense to you to say that Tinker Devers a chance, and it seems like that's like one of the best double play combos. So it seems like it makes sense. Like, Taylor made, I don't know. That's a new one on me. But well, with that, due to the time constraints, we're going to have to end the podcast part of the evening. Okay. When you have somebody like Hal Bach here who's, uh, covered sports for over 40 years and 30 World Series. My job is easy. I sit in the chair. I say, how did this book project come about? And I don't say anything for an hour. Uh, so the name of the book, again, The Last Chicago Cubs Dynasty Before the Curse, published by Roman and Littlefield, written by Hal Bach. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.